0: which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L O L A V I E. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rina and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. This is a Mom Room Book Club episode and so Jen and I, Jen is our president, sit down and we talk about August's book which was How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. We chat about things that we learned from reading the book and we also take you through some of the topics that really stood out to us or made an impact on us. If you did get a chance to read the book in August, that's fine. I hope you'll listen to this episode and maybe it'll inspire you to read it. September's book is Mom Truths by Kat Nat and I did announce what October's book is and that is Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. If you're not a part of the Mom Room Book Club and you want to be, you can follow us on Instagram at the.mom.room.bookclub. So without further ado, here is this bonus episode where we chat about how to be an anti-racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Hello, Jen. Hello, Renee. Hi. So we are talking about the second book of the Mom Room Book Club. Our first book was Untamed by Glennon Doyle, and we have an episode where we chatted about that book. And our second book, which was August's book, is How to Be an Anti Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And so when I had the podcast going and I decided, oh, I'm going to have this book club and it would be a really good idea if every month we have a different book and then we do a podcast episode where Jen and I, she's our president, we just kind of talk about the book for that month. So I knew I wanted to do a book on racism and somebody recommended this book specifically. So I chose this book and then... I'll just be honest. I was kind of terrified to think like, oh my God, Jen and I are going to have to talk about a book about racism because we're two white people, white girls. We both grew up in a smaller city in Northern Ontario. Um, And so, yeah, I was a little bit afraid to have this conversation, but I think the more, as I got into Ibram's book, I was like, no, we need to have this conversation. Like, why wouldn't we just because we're white? That's part of the problem is people not having the conversation. So then I got kind of excited to talk about it. And so here we are. So yeah, we are two white girls. We're talking about how to be an anti-racist and i think you know you always hear people say it's okay to make mistakes as long as you're trying and you're learning and you're moving forward like nobody's going to be perfect so yeah we just wanted to kind of go through his book give our review what we thought of the book and then also talk about points that really resonated with us and that stuck out and that we think we would want to share with our audience. Ignoring race is is racism. So I think it's good for us to have this conversation. First, I'll just ask you, Jen, what your overall thoughts were about the book.
1: I really liked the book. I didn't read it twice through like I read Glennon's book twice through because this book had so much information packed in. It was very... um I don't want to say dense in a negative sense, but there was just a lot of information to take in. So I read it very slowly um, and very thoughtfully. I've learned a ton through this book in terms of myself, in terms of American culture, in terms of how racism is still prevalent in Canada. I think a lot of people tend to think that in Canada, we might be in a post-racial society, or we're not as bad uh, as some places within the US. But I think that there is still Lots of opportunity for us to improve in Canada and um, to get to know the issues of uh, that Canadians or that Black Canadians face as well. And so, while this book is written from an American perspective, I think there's a ton of takeaways for Canadians. Um, I my some of my favorite parts in this book were that he intermixed history. Um, he's a history professor, I have a bachelor degree in history. So I liked that part. I think for some people, they might think that it kind of reads like a history book in those sections, but he did a really good job of intermixing history with personal anecdotes. And new age definitions and really challenging the reader. So I think in every single chapter he he structured it the same way where he opened with definitions, kind of went into history, but then gave his own personal experiences um, with racism. Um and he, he kind of did it in a chronological order. So you have the sense of where his parents started from all the way through his early childhood, his high school years, his college years, all the way through to present day. So I really think that he did a good job of each chapter kind of taking the reader on that journey. So I loved that. I felt connected through the whole book. I thought that the chapters were really poignant, and I was able to start and finish the chapter in one sitting. And he kind of ended each chapter kind of suspenseful, like he left you wanting to know more because he would end on that personal note on his um, how his life, like in his life journey. So I don't know if you noticed that, but it's kind of suspenseful at the end of the chapter. And I did want to start the next chapter. So I think he did a really good job of connecting all of the topics through. And I think that he did also a really good job of tying in really, um, like the history aspect, like going all the way back to when racism kind of first became prevalent in like the 15th century, but also tying in, um, things from like the sixties, the seventies, uh, slavery all the way to present day. So he did a really good job of kind of tying in that history, like throughout the book. Yeah. Anyways, so that's not really a nutshell, but those are my thoughts. (laughs)
0: Biteables make the transition to finger foods easy because they are cut perfectly to size which promotes self-feeding, and of course all the Biteables are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. And then there are plates for your toddlers and your bigger kids. They are meals that are free of all the bad stuff. They taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. They have things like hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous things like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. Little Spoon also has smoothies and build-it-yourself lunches. Did I mention it all comes right to your door? It is super flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. You can pick up the menu and change up what you order every single time. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You and your kids will love it. It's a huge win-win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. Yeah, it was. I found... I found Glennon's book really easy to read and I was able to read it fairly quickly. Um, A lot of, some of her chapters were really tiny and it was more kind of, I don't know if you could call it like conversational, but it, I too had to read this book a lot slower because you are trying to digest the information, Um, especially when it was the parts where he was talking about the history, I would find myself trying to really like read the people's names and understand in case, you know, later on in the book, they, he talked about them again. And so it was a lot slower of a read, but I loved the mix, like you said, of history, his, um, his like experience growing up and his parents and how he kind of blended those things into each chapter. Um, And I liked, similar to Glennon's book, it almost seemed like each chapter was its own thing, its own little identity, its own little book almost, because he started with the definition and one chapter, each chapter was very specific, which I liked. My biggest takeaway from this book, just overall, was my whole life, and you're probably the same, I was raised to just not see color. Yeah. Just being in, in the book, I think he called it like being neutral until literally probably a few months ago. I thought that was a good thing. Oh, good job, Renee. Like you're doing so well because you don't see color and it's just not something that you think about. Not seeing color and not having to think about color or even, and Jen knows this because I've never been involved in politics or or know what's going on in Canada um, that 's a privilege because i don 't have to, yeah, because for me i 'm not affected by these things. Something that Ibram points out in his book is there is no such thing as neutral or 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 you know not seeing color as I would say there's only things that are racist and then there's things that are anti-racist and that's it and when you look at it that way not acknowledging race or being neutral is helping racism continue Um, not being involved in politics not knowing what's going on is helping racism continue and once the cop murdered George Floyd this is when, you know, the social media exploded and I was consuming so much content and something just clicked in my brain. And I was like, okay, this is crazy. And it was specifically a video or, Mm -hmm. or maybe I was reading something about how one of his last words was that he was crying out for his mom. I feel like I'm going to cry something happened in my brain when I saw that. And I remember I was trying to fall asleep and it was pitch black in my room and I was just like scrolling Instagram. And I was like, this is fucking crazy. You know, my whole life I thought not seeing color was such a good thing and it's not.
1: And I would agree. Like, I think that I grew up my whole life thinking that we didn't need, that we should not see color and that I didn't see color. However, I think that after like you, um, with everything that's been going on, I am also consuming more content and trying to figure out what I can do within our own community and within our society to educate myself more, to, you know, be, understand who my neighbors are, who my colleagues are. Um, but I also have realized, and especially reading this book that even though when I thought I didn't see color, I definitely did because there's parts in this book where I was like, oh, I, i thought that before Uh, I think in one chapter he talks about biology and you know uh, he talks about well people sometimes assume that black people are just faster because they're black like in terms of being an athlete right they have more athleticism and we shouldn't think that and that's a thought that I've had before and so when I think back like when I was like I didn't see color Mm -hmm. I actually did so I was actually fooling myself too right so in some situations I would see color but then overall I would you know, sit on my high horse thinking like, oh, I don't see color. And so you're right that it's like, we are now in a different situation and we all have the opportunity to learn more and to do better. And I think Imbram does a really good job in this book of explaining how none of us are perfect. We're, ne- we're not going to get it right. And we're going to continue to learn. And basically we're so far from being in a, perfectly anti-racist world but all of these acts that we can do to to be anti-racist will only do us all like all of humanity better he talks a lot about how he's been racist himself or he's had these same kind of ideas um and so i think that's really uh kind of refreshing in a sense but also it's really eye-opening for me to realize that um there's so much room for improvement and I'm not going to get it right, but I literally have to try. Yes.
0: Um, Something else I wanted to point out. um, He talked about how it's not so much labeling people as being racist, but it's more labeling policies, ideas, like statements, uh, things like that because, and he's right in like, when you say someone is racist there's like a defensive wall that goes up and people just shut down the conversation as opposed to that thing that you said is racist or that policy, you know, in this workplace is racist. Um, so I think that's important. Yeah. Because in one
1: moment, in one moment, you could, I think even talks about this, that you could have an anti-racist thought and a racist thought in the same sentence. And so it's important. You're right. It's important that like, not every action that we we do is going to be racist, but just the same as not every action is anti-racist. And so we need to continuously do more anti-racist actions and, and the words we say and the thoughts that we have so that overall we can, you know, start to become anti-racist.
0: Yes, because I think the issue is, you know, it's, it's a word that as soon as you say it, people are just like, oh my God, I'm not a racist. No. And they just like Mm. shut down completely. Whereas after reading this book, it's like, oh, yeah, like these ideas were racist. Like saying Mm -hmm. this or thinking this way is racist. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you're racist and that's all you are. It's just like this is the society that we live in and these are things that we need to work on. Yeah. So
1: I also liked when he was challenging some of the buzzwords that we hear right now too. So in terms of like institutional or systemic or structural. And so while those have their places and depending on who your audience is, that might be relevant. But I think overall, I liked when he said that he he calls it just racist policies because people can understand what you mean when you say a policy and how uh, our societies tend to be built on policies and our policies build our societies. Like they're very intertwined with each other. But you know, sometimes people are like, oh, we talk about institutional or systemic racism. But depending on who your audience is, they might not even be able to relate to that. So I think you're always like that's always a key thing to remember too is who are you trying to talk to so that your message actually comes across. And so that's why I think it's so great that in 2020 we have podcasts, we have books, we have articles, we have TikTok, we have uh, Instagram so people can, can can consume the content that is easiest for them to consume. And so that's why I think it's really important that people like us today, we're talking about this and it's a podcast episode. And I think like the more info that is kind of out there, then the more it's easier for people to find as well. And so I, I like that he challenges that though, because you do hear that a lot and you're like, what is, what is that? What is systemic racism? What does that actually mean? Right kind of breaks it down and says like stop using it let's just get to the point like it's racist policy. Just to add to
0: that, the more content you consume, like I've been listening to a ton of podcasts, watching the Beyonce the Black is King uh Disney special, reading books, tons of Instagram, and the more you consume, I think the more you'll find it's easier, it's easy to talk about racism. I think before, like a couple months ago, I would have never been like, yeah, let's do a podcast and talk about how to be an anti-racist. Like I would have been like, no, but the more you expose yourself to it, the more comfortable you get, you know, over the last couple months, as I'm consuming all this content, I never would have thought twice before to walk into chapters and look for books for Milo. Like I would just pick something that was cute and you know what I'm saying? Like a Paw Patrol book or whatever. The last few months has made me so much more aware of toys that I'm buying him, um, books that he's going to be exposed to. I even found online, but they were out of stock, they have a box of Crayola crayons that are all different skin colors. But yeah, never like, I, it never would have occurred to me before to make sure that he has diverse books, like diverse dolls, diverse, you know, movies that you can watch with your child, TV shows that, um, you know, have diverse characters. The information is out there. But I think you have to seek it out. Let's talk about the, I liked the, I think it was chapter two, where he talks about assimilation. I feel like I've heard that word growing up a lot, Um, especially in Canada. Or am I thinking of a different word?
1: No, I think you're thinking of the right thing. I think we were taught to think that assimilation was good, kind of like that melting pot kind of concept where instead of being culturally diverse, let's embrace the cultures, but at the same time together, right? Like, let's bring, let's have less of a divide between cultures and between race. So- no, I think that you're, you're right, that we were kind of, I, I didn't grow up thinking that as something negative.
0: Same. And I feel like you, you heard it all the time. Yeah. Maybe not so much in like where we grew up, but in Toronto for sure, I've heard that my whole life, never thought it was a bad thing. And to read his chapter where he basically says assimilationist ideas are racist ideas. I was like, oh, Wow. And then when he broke it down, this is something that was throughout his book. He breaks things down in a way where you're like, mm-hmm. exactly with the assimilation thing. Like, oh, my whole life, I just thought that was a good thing and never thought anything of it. And then he breaks it down for you and you're like, oh, fuck, that's terrible. And yeah, it is. Yes. So basically, he explains it in a way that's when, when someone is assimilating They're basically trying to reach the superior standard of what they should be, which is to be white, what the white people are doing.
1: Yeah. I think it's, I also like when throughout the book, he, I mean, this, this particular topic in terms of assimilation, um, he doesn't talk about it throughout the whole book, but he talks about in multiple chapters, when he's talking about a certain idea, he breaks it down like this is a racist thought. This is a segregationist thought way of thinking. And then this is an anti-racist way of thinking. And so he continues that theme throughout the book. So you're really able to understand what point he's trying to make. Cause you're like, okay, that one is clearly racist. And then this one's okay. Yeah. Like someone who supports segregation. And then this is how to be anti-racist in this particular situation. So,
0: yeah. So he says one race is superior to the other races and those other races should be striving to be like them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Previously, you mentioned how he, like how there's all the terms nowadays, um, systemic racism, institutional, like all that stuff. And another word that is used a lot today that he doesn't like, and he explains why he doesn't like it, is microaggressions. I listened to a podcast where they were talking about what that means, because I Never knew. I think I even Googled it and I was still having a hard time figuring out what it meant. And then I was listening to a podcast episode and she was just very bluntly explaining what what it meant. And then it kind of clicked for me. Um, So it could be as simple as asking a black woman to touch her hair or little things that maybe to the person doing it, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But when you're the person who is constantly receiving the microaggressions, as some people call it, it is, it builds up and it's actually, it's racism. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like, so I I agree that this point really, I think you did a really good job of expressing this point because I think right now with a lot of the content that's out there, people are talking about microaggression constantly and it almost is like a buzzword, Right, um, and like you said, one example is like, "Hey, can I touch your hair?" Or another example I've heard too is like, "Oh, are you are you going to wear your natural hair to that job interview?" And so it's just like, you know, these words or actions and thoughts that aren't necessarily—they're not violent or they're not super aggressive, and they're not policies. So sometimes people don't see them as racist. But Ibram is basically saying no. Just call it what it is. Stop being afraid of saying. He even says the R word, racism. It's racism. There, you know, a microaggression is just a racist thought or a racist expression to somebody. And so I like that he kind of like calls people out on that one. I mean, I think that there's a, there is always a time and place for certain things, right? It's easy to say like, let's never use that word again, because it is a word that people can relate to. But at the same time, I totally agree with him when he says like, it's just outright racism. So let's not use a fluffy or a a lighter word to describe it. Just call it what it is. Uh, mm
0: Going back to what you said about, are you going to wear your natural hair to the job interview? It made me think of, so the actual, the girl that recommended how to be an anti-racist as our book, cause I told her I wanted to do a book on racism for the book club. Like, is there any book that you would recommend? So her name is Mackenzie Green and she is a host every Friday on the Taylor Strecker radio show. And she's been on her podcast a couple times in the last few months, and they've had really candid conversations about racism, about being Black in America. Highly recommend. And in the latest episode, she was talking about exactly that. You know, being white, like we would never even think twice about how we're going to wear our hair or Mm -hmm. if our appearance in any way was going to affect what the people interviewing us would think of us. Right. Yeah. And it's actually such a big deal for black women or black men to have their hair in a way that is acceptable because, you know, dreadlocks or braids, you know, whatever it may be, aren't seen the same way in the workforce. So they have to, she was explaining like all the trouble they will go to, to have white looking hair. And it blew my mind. Because I never would have thought of that.
1: And then think about like how, you know, if you're going to a job interview and you have to change how you look and how you act and maybe even how you speak, how it's so unfair. And these are the exact kind of like policies that we need to change, especially in the workforce, right? We, we, organizations need to do a better job at recruiting and ensuring that we are recruiting every, everybody equally and fairly. Right. Um,
0: yeah. Like based on things that matter. Yeah. You know, like not hair. It's crazy. Yeah.
1: Well, I think like if it kind of ties into, um, where Ibram does a, have a chapter where he does talk about beauty standards, right. Yeah. And let's kind of get away with beauty standards and let's embrace everyone's hair types or your facial features or your body type. And I loved when he's talking about that, because it's so true. Like, why do we always have to change how we look? And like you were saying, maybe as a white woman, I don't, I might compare myself to, to certain beauty standards, but I'm not criticized necessarily on my appearance, the way black women are. And so I, in that chapter, he also talks about, um, I think it was interesting. He kind of compared to like, how come it's okay for, or some people think it's okay for white people to go to tanning beds to change their skin color, you know, but then you would look down on a black person if they're trying to change their skin color, right? And he's so he basically just wants everyone to embrace all, all beauty because everyone is beautiful, no matter what your, your natural features are, or how you decide to style your hair or what clothes you want to wear.
0: So that chapter, again, I was listening to a podcast and it happens again to be the Taylor Strucker podcast. Um, and she had on two models who they were on a big modeling television show. I forget which one. You know the one where they make the outfits, like with Heidi Klum, and
1: oh, I forget what it's called. I don't remember Runway or Run.
0: Yes, Project Project Runway. She had two like some of the top models that were on that show and. She was talking to them about race. They are African American. And it was so interesting to listen to the racism that goes on in the modeling industry. Something that they pointed out, which made me think about his chapter on the beauty standards, was so companies, you know, recently have been trying to push for more diverse models. That's fine. But what they were saying was, When you're African-American, it's so hard to be hired because people want, you know, like there's the white models and then there's the, um, what do they call it? And it's funny because this is what I had to put Milo as when he got an agent was racially ambiguous. So you don't really know what they are. Like you can't really pinpoint, you know, their background, let's say, or their race, their color, their ethnicity. Um, I don't know the proper word to use. Or they hire models that have very, like, African looks to them. So they gave the example of Lupita Nuango. So they were basically saying it's like they're somewhere in between. Like, you either have to be very, you know, African descent uh, looking or what's it called? Racially ambiguous.
1: I think too, Ibram does talk about, um, it's in that same chapter on color where he talks about beauty standards, where he talks about, there are the different levels in terms of skin color. And I think at one point he talks about, um, the darker skinned black men are in the, in the U S have harsher prison sentences. I think he was even talking about, and I don't know if the the stat is the same. I think it was maybe in the eighties, but, um, lighter skinned children would be adopted first. And uh, you know, again, because I'm ignorant, I'm gonna just say, like I've been ignorant. i I never would have thought that that would matter, um, but it matters a lot. And Ibrahim himself even talks about, I think, at one point where he he didn't want to date. Lighter skinned women anymore. He only was attract like gonna. He declared himself only to be attracted to like darker skinned women, and like it's just again because of my privilege. It's not nothing that I even thought about really till I read this book.
0: Okay, I'm gonna read a quote from. The book, it's just short. So he says, This is racist categorizing, the stuffing of our experiences with individuals into color marked racial closets. So he was talking about an experience that he had with a white teacher. And so that experience with that one white teacher kind of created, like, he generalized her behaviors to all white people. Um, And so he talked about how we we maybe have one instance in a day where we see someone have, you know, an off-putting behavior, or we have an interaction, like a negative interaction with someone, and then we kind of generalize to the entire race. On the book club Instagram account, I posted that quote, and my caption was, We are all guilty of doing this. It's so easy to judge entire groups based on the behavior of actions of a select few. This is really a problem when you live your life surrounded by people who are just like you. So for me, white people. So at work, online, social groups, etc. So you're only exposed to um, Black, Indigenous people of color in the media or randomly when you're out and about. But we don't focus on the million neutral or pleasant interactions with people. We tend to focus on the negative. Mm -hmm. And we stuff what we see in the media and negative interactions into color marked racial closets. Acknowledging and recognizing that you do this is a step in the right direction. I really related to that because, you know, for the most part, if I have the news on, it's like you're not seeing pleasant things on the news, first of all. And then Mm -hmm. even humans in general, we focus on the negative, we'll remember negative things as opposed to positive things. When you kind of live in a white bubble, let's call it, you have very minimal actual face to face interactions. uh, And then you have a negative interaction. You're going to focus on that. And that's what he did with his teacher. I think it was in third grade.
1: Yeah, I agree. Like, you know, especially when we came from a small community in Northern Ontario, where pretty much everyone I interacted with on a daily basis was, was white. You might've, I might've interacted with some people from Europe, but again, white Europeans. And so a lot of what I knew about black people was what I would have seen on the media or maybe on TV shows as a kid. And so sometimes this is still true for adults who maybe live their whole lives in a smaller community and they, they don't have interactions with people who look different from them. And so you are going to hold those negative interactions as you're going to see those as truths and think that like kind of think that that is true for the whole population. And I think that it's even more a reason to why we need to not only read and consume more, but literally go physically meet new people and challenge yourself to, to meet your, your neighbors or your colleagues or, and to actually put yourself in different community settings so that you can, can have those positive interactions so that the negative things aren't what get stuck in your mind. Right. And I think for Abram, he also, so that scenario with his third grade teacher is where he talks about, I think his uh, racial puberty. And it's when he really realized or his parents realized that now he knew um, what it meant to be different um, or to see himself as different, um, but he also, had a, I, th- I don't know if it's the same chapter or a later chapter where he talks about when he was still in Queens um, and he had a friend or someone that he kind of associated with who was violent, Smurf, and he characterized himself as, okay, well, black, you know, black teens are violent and they're aggressive and the, you know, they have this kind of persona. And so, because, so he was even, himself like had that dual consciousness of seeing himself in that light um so again he also wasn't remembering all of the positive interactions or all of the times in his own neighborhood where he went to play basketball and everything was fine and he walked to school and everything was fine you he would get stuck on well remember that one time when someone pulled out a gun Rather than thinking of every million other interactions that were beautiful, boring, simple, uneventful, you forget about all of those. And it's really important for us to not forget about all of the mundane things that happen in life.
0: He had a chapter on behavior and something that really stood out to me in this chapter was when he talks about how white kids growing up for him and I'm maybe this is still true today white kids can do poorly in school they can you know have bad behavior in school and it's looked at as an individual problem as opposed to you know if a black child does poorly in school or they have bad behavior in school it's a race problem problem and he explained how growing up if he did poorly in school or he did something wrong he felt like he was letting his entire race down And I think this is a quote, he says, white kids could also study harder, but their failures and irresponsibilities didn't tarnish their race, or it wasn't looked at as a result of their race, which is wild to me. And, but I can see how this, Mm -hmm. like this is reality. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In that chapter two, he's talking about how I think A lot of people tend to think that there are black genes, without thinking that it's necessarily a gene. But in the chapter, he talks about how black people are often characterized as being loud or angry or funny or lazy, uh, less punctual. And when I was reading that, like, those are thoughts that I don't know that, that I had definitely like have come across my mind, or that I like I knew that I've heard a thousand times in my life that. Black people are less punctual they're late oh but he's black it's you know and people kind of justify it and you know in growing up you you don't even question that now i'm thinking like what how are these negative attributes in, attributed to an entire race of people like it literally does not make any sense and we need to kind of recognize that racial thought process and actively change it um because you know he also says behavior is something humans do not races so, we're all human. We all have behaviors, and none of them are attributed to one single race.
0: Yeah. In that chapter, he also says for white people, success is attainable for even unexceptional individuals. Black people have to be extraordinary just to survive. Those few statements that he made in that chapter stood out to me so much. And you always hear about, you know, black parents having to tell their children that, you know, you need to work 10 times harder than the rest of the kids in your class to do just as well as they do. Yeah. You know, to get into that college to, you know, whatever it may be. So Ibram had a chapter called gender. And there's two things that stood out for me that I think we should talk about in this podcast, considering that it's probably mostly women listening to this podcast. He talked about some statistics that were pretty shocking. So the median wealth of single white women is $42,000 compared to $100 for single black women. Insane. Another statistic, black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy related cause than are white women. And black women with an advanced degree are more likely to lose their baby than a white woman with less than an eighth grade education. And black women are twice as likely to be incarcerated as white women. All the resources that I've talked about or podcasts, um, I'm going to put in the episode notes. But another podcast that I wanted to mention, I believe the, the title of the podcast is Lean In. And they had an episode where they spoke with Serena Williams specifically about her birth experience. And I remember listening to that episode and they talked all about the racial inequalities with regard to pregnancy and giving birth in the States. And it was shocking. And when Serena Williams told her story, it blew my mind because I was like, here is like this high profile Black woman who has all the best doctors, like everything at her fingertips. And she still had major issues giving birth. And she was able, obviously, to advocate for herself and people really listened to what she had to say Um, when she was concerned about what was going on. And thank God, because it was actually like she had serious um, issues. But it made me think, like, what if you're just a regular Black woman going in to give birth? Nobody's advocating for you. You're not some high-profile athlete, like literally one of the most high-profile athletes. How How do you hear this story about Serena Williams having a difficult time and then feel confident going in to deliver your baby with these statistics and knowing that the healthcare professionals don't take you seriously. They think that you can um, endure pain more than white women. Like that's a legit factor that comes into play.
1: Yeah. Like really sad. It's awful. It's, you know, I think this chapter for me, I often think like, Oh, you know, I'm a feminist. I have feminist ideologies, uh- and then I read this and I was like, oh well, you know, am I really a feminist if I don't really know about all of these challenges and the differences and the inequities between white and black women or within Canada, also with our indigenous women and the and the, the differences uh in our healthcare system between indigenous women and white women or in black women and white women. And it's just literally is appalling. And, you know, you rereading those quotes back, I think that we have so much room for improvement and we literally have to start doing better. So
0: Jen and I, we went over some of the major themes or parts of the book that stood out to us. Uh, There's a lot more in the book that we could talk about, but, you know, we're a little bit pressed for time. I have to actually go through and edit this episode so it can't be like nine hours long but highly recommend this book. It is a slightly more difficult read than the last book. Um, yeah. Jen, anything you want to
1: say? No, other than I think everyone, if you get the chance to read it, I also heard that the audio book was really good. I did not listen to the audio book, but I think Ibram himself narrates it. So if you don't have time to sit down and actually read it yourself, I heard that the audio was a really good audio book.
0: Yes, and I highly recommend his children's book as well if you have little ones at home. And he was recently on Oprah's special. I think it's called Conversations with Oprah. It's on Apple. Um, Apple TV. It's yes, it's on Apple TV, and I think he has two episodes or maybe just one. But check that out. Um, follow his Instagram, and yeah, thank you for listening. We'll I'm